Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Welcome to New Garden Church. Now, even though I can't be there in person this morning, I'm glad to know that you are there worshiping together, bringing glory to God. Now, if this is your first time here, my name is Jeff. I'm the lead minister. And as you may have heard by now, our family is at home this Sunday due to COVID precautions. But if all goes as planned, we will be back in person with you next Sunday. Now, I know watching somebody teach on screen may not be the most exciting thing, but it does have some advantages. For instance, one question I always think when somebody gets up is, how long is this going to take? Well, by the magic of technology, I can tell you that it will be finished in exactly this many minutes. Now, I know a few of you always want that number to be lower, but listen, I'm doing the best I can, right? We've got a lot to cover. Now, we can revisit that number as we go along since I can't guarantee a number like that when I'm preaching live. All right, so we are in a series called Long Story Short as we take a year and travel through the whole Bible. And after today, we only have four more weeks in the Old Testament. Now, at times, it felt like it would take forever to get through some of the books in the Hebrew Bible, but the end is just around the corner. So here's where we're going to be in the next few weeks. Today, we will be examining the book of Daniel. The next two weeks, we will spend in Ezra, Nehemiah, one Sunday looking at Chronicles, and then on September 26th, we will wrap up the Old Testament with a summary of the Hebrew Bible, and then we'll turn the page in October to the Gospels. But back to today and to the book of Daniel. Now, if you are following along in the reading plan, we will all start reading the book of Daniel today. We can't cover everything this book has to offer this morning. The countdown would be much longer. Uh, So we're going to focus the majority of our time on one story. But since we are reading it this week, let's do a quick introduction and overview of the book so we can have some context this week and for our story this morning. Now, the book of Daniel has some of our favorite stories in it, but it also has some of the most disputed chapters found in the Bible. It is a mixture of piety and prophecy. It has stories that help us know how we can live faithfully, even when we're surrounded by a culture that does not share our faith, right? This this is the great Veggie Tales content, but it's not just a bunch of kids' stories. They help us answer some of the tough questions of how to conduct ourselves counterculturally when the cultural stream is swift and it's moving in the opposite direction of where we feel called to live. But the book of Daniel also has a number of prophecies that give those Israelites living in exile a hope to hold on to. Namely, that Yahweh will be king over the whole earth, and that the Son of Man's arrival will deliver Israel from judgment under the rule of a Gentile world. The book of Daniel also stands out in Hebrew scriptures as one of two books that include lengthy passages written in Aramaic, the language of the world at the time, and not just written in Hebrew, the language of the Jews. The other book that includes passages in Aramaic is Ezra Nehemiah, which we'll be looking at 
next week and the week following. So if you have your Bible open or you want to write this down, you can note that starting in chapter 2 of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 4, and going through the end of chapter 7, it was all originally written in Aramaic. So if you're reading a book at home and the author puts a section in a different font or perhaps sets it apart by putting it in some sort of box, you would think, oh, there must be something going on here. I need to pay attention. Perhaps the author is trying to do something or say something. Well, this author put this section in a whole different language. So what is going on? Well, a number of things. But one thing that is pretty clear is the author has arranged the six stories we find in chapters 2 through 7 in a chiasm. As you are reading, maybe you will notice that the stories in chapters 2 and 7 have similarities, like dreams concerning Gentile kingdoms. Chapters 3 and 6 have similarities, like faithful Jews peacefully resisting the pressure to bow or pledge allegiance to anything or anyone other than Yahweh, and those faithful Jews facing persecution but finding protection that comes from Yahweh. And chapters 4 and 5 of two Gentile kings who struggle with their own pride and face their own downfall. And this allows us to read these stories in light of one another and also see the major theme highlighted by the middle stories and emphasized by the surrounding stories. Again, the idea that Yahweh is the king of heaven. His works are true. His ways are just. His dominion is everlasting and his kingdom will endure forever. And it's one of these stories that we're going to focus on with our remaining time. Now, if you have a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 3. This is the famous story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these were not their original Hebrew names. If you remember from 2 Kings 24, Babylon attacks Jerusalem, plunders the city and the temple, takes takes a wave of Israelites into exile, and among them were four men from the royal family of David. Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, is given the Babylonian name Belteshazzar, which means Bel protects my life. Hananiah, whose name means Yahweh shows grace, is given the name Shadrach, which means command of Aku. Mishael, whose name means who is what God is, is given the name Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And Azariah, whose name means Yahweh helps, who is given the name Abednego, which means servant of Nego. So these men are taken from their home, placed in a new culture, given new names that strip them of their association with their God, and they're put in a three-year education program to equip them to serve in the king's royal court. Now, chapter one introduces us to Daniel and his friends. They're really wise and capable. They've been recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon, and they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians, and then therefore violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. Now, if you think of the book of Daniel like a piece of music, Chapter 1 introduces us to the different instruments, sounds, melodies that we're going to hear throughout the rest of the book. But once you get to chapter 3, the music all comes together in a crescendo. Now, the term crescendo refers to both the gradual increase in volume as well as the peak, the highest point of intensity of this increase. It's not hard to appreciate a crescendo because we all understand the fascination and the anticipation of a good buildup to the epic moment in a movie or 
or a book or a piece of music where all the smaller pieces and twists, they come together in the culmination of a tidal wave of momentum. The orchestra swells, the battle is won, the team scores the winning goal, but it is the smaller details, the harmonies, the refrains, the tempo, the volume increasing that all come together to make this crescendo so epic. Without all of these smaller elements building, we would not appreciate the crescendo nearly as much. It would just be this big, loud blast out of nothing. But in a story, it is the smaller plot twist, the character development, decisions made that lead to the climax of a tale. Now, throughout the book of Daniel, you read about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego making smaller stands, though not without risk, up until the point in the story. And the story that we're looking at today might not be the climax of the entire book of Daniel, but at least with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it is the story that we are most sitting on the edge of our seats, biting our nails, waiting to see how everything turns out, how their little stands and acts of faithfulness lead to this most dramatic stand and all the different elements build to this crescendo. Now, as we work through the text, I want us to look for clues and dynamics about what their stand was or was not about to help us understand and more appreciate where their bigger stand or crescendo was coming from. So I'm only going to ask you to remember two words in the message today. I think you're up for it. The words are for and with. Everybody say for. Everybody say with. Good. Now, I know that sounds complicated, which is why I have my four hermitage shirt on. So you'll always see at least one of these words, but for and with. So chapter three starts out with an explanation of what King Nebuchadnezzar has been up to. He has made a golden statue or image that is this absolute monstrosity in size. And he gathers together all the local leaders, scholars, officials, and they're all commanded that when the music plays, they're to bow down and worship this image. Anyone who does not is going to be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Is the story sounding familiar? Right. If you've ever been to Sunday school or watched Singing Vegetables, you've probably heard it before. So the party starts, the music plays, everybody bows down except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So verses 8 through 12 explain what happens next. At this time, some Chaldeans or Babylonians came forward and denounced the Jews They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. First, it's interesting to observe the unholy trinity of the king, his gods, and his image. But basically, some of the other leaders that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego work with, some of whom that they've probably been promoted over, they come to the king reporting these men's defiance of his decree. Some translations even say that they were maliciously accusing them. But the issue against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego probably has less to do with their religion or their honesty. These accusers are probably just jealous, and they have it out for these guys. Like We even see them goading the king with, like, they pay no attention to you, your majesty. This is the first clue, the plot twist, the dynamic that we see about the heart of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's choice. If maintaining or standing up for their faith was just about reward or prestige, 
they're not going to stick to it when the Chaldeans accuse them. These charges really aren't even about their faith. Their faith is being used as the pawn of some evil men. So if their faith and their stand are just about staying comfortable or maintaining status, we're going to see it crumble. I mean, why would they stick with something that wasn't even the issue and is being used against them? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's commitment to their faith and taking a stand was not for their positions or for some reward. It was about something more important than those things. So back to the text, verses 13 through 15. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought before the king, who is absolutely livid with them. This is the most powerful man in the world who has no law other than his own. There's no due process or trial by jury of your peers in this land. The king says, you're gone, and you're gone. Now here we have another clue into the grit and the dynamics behind their stand. Their stand, it wasn't for their prestige or esteem of those around them. Because if their stand was only strong enough to be made to their peers or to those beneath them, we're going to see it cave in the presence of the king. It's easy when we have convictions when nothing is testing them. It's easy to hold your ground when nothing is on the line. And it's easier to make a stand to your subordinates or maybe your peers But to make a stand before the king who does not hesitate to incinerate people, that is a different story. Nebuchadnezzar challenges them with what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. Like, do you really think your God is more powerful than me? Something that's really important to note here is that the king Nebuchadnezzar is not asking them to completely denounce the existence of Yahweh or even stop worshiping him. Religion in the ancient Near East was polytheistic, which means they had many gods that they worshipped, and worshipping one was not mutually exclusive to worshipping another. This was very different from the Israelites' command of, you will have no other gods before me, a command that these three knew very well. Nebuchadnezzar is asking them to bow down to something in addition to God, not to deny God. And this is often what we face as well. Most of the stands that we make are not all an all-out denunciation of our faith. Our problems are not typically a God or issue, but a God and issue. Worship God and something else. Find your identity in God and something else. Your security in God and something else. Your freedom in God and something else. Your happiness in God and something else. It's an easy trap to fall into. God and money, God and country, God and fame, God and guns, God and nature, God and my job. Now, there are plenty of good things that can become an idol in our lives, good things that become God and things. But for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was not for their position. It was not for their prestige. It was not for God and anything else. It was for God alone. Refusing to make a concession or worship or trust anything else, Not the golden image, not the king, not God, and something else. Because 
if you have a God and you're not standing for him alone. This is why I only ask you to remember two words and and wasn't one of them. We don't want an and, we want a for. And while we might not have an actual image that we're tempted to bow down to, little idols pop up in our hearts and our lives, like small concessions of turning our hearts to other things so we don't even realize that they're growing in there. I actually think this might be how the enemy prefers it. We don't even realize that we're denouncing God by worshiping other things. As C.S. Lewis puts it in the Screwtape Letters, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It's sneaky, so we don't even realize that we're caught in it. One of the ways we may see this pop up in our life and in other people's lives lies in King Nebuchadnezzar's question, what God will be able to rescue you or provide you an out from your worst fear? Is that your bank account, your job title, a relationship, your health, maybe it's your own resourcefulness or ingenuity. But what is your backup plan when all your worst fears come to fruition? We need to name these other things that we look to, to provide an out for us or that we find satisfaction in. Otherwise, we will not be able to make the kind of stand that we're about to see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make. Their stand was not rooted in a backup plan or an idol or the king to save them. As it turns out, their stand wasn't even rooted in God saving them from this disaster. Look at verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is the crescendo that we're looking at today. All of the smaller stands these men have made, all the different dynamics are culminating in this point. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make a stand that's based on God, not God and anything. It's for God, not what he might do. They knew that God could save them, but he very well might not. They were okay with that. They were committed to making a stand for God and maintaining their sole allegiance to Him, even if it meant dying for it. This is the most important point of their stand. It's for God alone. And when we make a stand or follow after God, it has to be about Him. We can't follow Him hanging on to the expectation that we will receive any earthly reward. We trust in His promises for an eternal reward, but we don't hold out for an earthly one other than simply being one of His children. You might face financial ruin. God might restore it. He might not. But do you still love him and stand for him? Your health might fail. God might heal you. He might not. Do you still love and stand for him? Your kid may walk away from the Lord. God might bring them back. He might not. Do you still stand for him? You don't have a nice house, a car, a relationship, or a thing, whatever it is you might want. God might give it to you. He might not. Do you still stand for him? Are you holding out for anything? God and anything. Because if you have a God and, you're not standing for him alone. But how do we do this? Like we have a hard enough time mustering up enough love and motivation for God to simply read our Bible and get to church on time. How do we learn to love and trust him enough to make a stand like this or whatever my equivalent is to give up my God and? It's the little moves 
decisions, and increases that lead to the crescendo. We need those smaller dynamics in order to fully appreciate it. We're not going to just wake up one day with the faith and love for God to be able to make a stand like this. We have to build to it. People like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not born. They are made. They're made and shaped by a hundred daily decisions that over a lifetime form a resolve that is unshakable. So what are some of the things about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that allowed them to make this climactic stand? One is they knew Yahweh their God. They knew his promises. They knew his character. That has been one of the greatest rewards from spending time in God's word on a daily basis this year. You get to know his character. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. If you're going to give up your God and you need to know your God. Now, their parents probably knew that the exile was coming and that their children and their grandchildren would have to endure this. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been taught about Yahweh, who he is, and the promises that he had made and kept to his people. They knew that God's promises and God's character were still true despite their current circumstances. Number two, they knew their story with God, both Israel and personally. They knew God's promises to Abraham were still intact. They knew that they were God's people and that a Messiah would come. They knew the stories of God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, manna in the desert, epic tales of King David. They knew their national history and identity as God's chosen people. These three also knew their own stories with God. They had survived the exile, which was this hostile takeover. They had received favor with the officials while eating just vegetables. They had received knowledge and understanding the dream and its interpretation. The king was amazed at them and promoted them. All of these things that God had done in their lives, they knew God, they knew their story with God, and third, they pursued God in prayer and community. In Daniel chapter 2, when all of the wise men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego included, are about to be executed over not knowing and interpreting the king's dream, Daniel, he goes to the king and he asks for more time to interpret it. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 says, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. This ties in with number two. They knew their personal history with God and they had seen him come through for them before. But there's another aspect of them banding together in prayer and community and petition before Yahweh. Sometimes, I think oftentimes, we need the faith of others to strengthen our own. In these dynamics, the buildup, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understand that God is God and they are not. God is good and he is able to save them, but he might not. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make a stand because God was worthy of them making that stand. It was not dependent on the earthly outcome for them. Their love and reverence for him, empowered by his being with them, is what their stand is all about. Now we're running out of time. So let's finish up by going back to the text. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. 
Now the word attitude here is literally the word image. It's the same word used for the image or statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So this is supposed to be kind of funny. Like here you have the king create an image of himself and it's trying to control these guys to bow down to his image when he can't even control his own image his face. Now this has so many ties to Genesis 1 through 3 about being made in the image of God and then later how we aren't supposed to make any images because God has already made images, humanity, but we don't have time to get into it because the clock is ticking. So he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. All right, so it's over. Story's done. They're toast. Like, how could anyone survive this? Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. So they come out, and they're just fine. In fact, they don't even smell like fire. Which, If you've ever tried to get campfire smell out of something, you know how truly miraculous this is. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. It is miraculous that God saves their lives. It makes for an incredible story. But what was the second word I wanted you to remember? With. The bigger deal I want us to see here is that God was with them. Now, scholars debate whether the fourth man in the furnace was a pre-incarnate Christ or an angel, but regardless, God was with them in their stand and in their trial. Now, it's an interesting observation that they were both saved and not saved from the fiery furnace. God did not save them from being thrown in, but he did save them from, being, from the consequences of being thrown in. But I would argue that their deliverance was not their greatest reward. It was being with God. This is a reward that we have. Emmanuel means God with us. It's an ongoing promise. And we get to live into this promise even more than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Because Christ has come, the veil has been torn, and we have the Holy Spirit living inside us. And when we view God as worthy and being in relationship with Him as our reward, this is when we're able to make a stand, to cast down our idols and to get rid of our God and and stop holding out for anything else. God did not owe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego anything. God doesn't owe us anything, but he gives us himself. This is the gift of with. 
Is this a truth that you can rest in when you make a stand or your faith comes at a high cost? Now, I think stories like this can get us into a bit of a superhero mode. Like they did it. I can do it. I'm going to make a stand like them. But the God, the promise of God with us also means that he is enabling us to do it. The cost or the stand will be too high for you if you're not with him making it. We must make our stand with him and for him. With him as our reward, with him empowering us, it's the only way you're going to be able to do it. But how do we grow in our love and withness with God? It's the same thing that these guys did. You know him. You know the story, you seek Him in prayer and community. Get to know God by spending time with Him in the Word, in prayer, in silence, outside. But get to know His promises and His unchanging character. Get to know God's story, the overarching story of Him creating and saving the world, the story of people in scriptures and and how God interacts with them. Reflect on your own personal story. How has He changed and worked in your life? Create habits of regularly reflecting on and praising Him for those moments. What are some ways that we can remember what God has done in your story? You know Him. You know the story. You're intentional about being in prayer and community with other believers who help encourage your faith in hard times. Rubbing shoulders with someone strong in faith can bolster your own in the midst of what you may be going through. We don't know when the crescendo or the, the stand in our story is about to come up, but the crescendo or the stand is not the only point. It's the buildup that allows us to get there. What decisions have you been making lately that reflect the future you that you want to be? What are the little dynamics, the melodies, the faithful choices that you're making now that are going to add up? Because you don't get to fully appreciate the crescendo or even get to it all, it all if you're not building to it now. Today, as we go to the table, as we take the bread and the cup, I want you to focus on two words, towards God, for and with. Make your stand for God because He alone is worthy. And make your stand with God because He is your only reward. And He is the only way you're going to be able to make it. But I also want you to hear these words from God for and with. God is for you, and He has shown that by sending Jesus for you. God put on flesh to be with us. God died on a cross to prepare our, our, our bodies as temples so that His Spirit could be with us. He rose from the grave to defeat sin and death to fulfill His promise that we could now spend eternity with Him. For and with. Let's focus on that as we go to the table. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.